a military jury convicted an army sergeant of murdering his own men. That's something that has not happened since the Vietnam War. The attack came in the middle of the night on March 22nd. 2003. Thousands of the Army's 101st Airborne Division were in Kuwait on the eve of the invasion of Iraq. Soldiers' guns were locked and loaded, pointed in every direction. These troops were nervous because they had heard Iraqi soldiers were somewhere inside the camp. But they soon learned this was an inside job. The alleged attacker wore the same U.S. desert camouflage as every one of them. To see Sergeant Hassan Akbar spread on the ground, plainly a suspect, was as startling as those two explosions. He had been found hiding in a bunker, wounded. Prosecutors argued that Akbar had told investigators he launched the attack on his comrades in the 101st Airborne Division because he was concerned U.S. troops would kill his fellow Muslims in Iraq. Thank you for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we'll be speaking with retired Army Command Sergeant Major Bart Womack. We'll cover his career from his first firefight along the DMZ in Korea to the insider attack in Kuwait where a U.S. soldier killed two and wounded 12 of his fellow service members if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Without further delay, I give you my conversation with Command Sergeant Major Bart Womack, recorded at the Senator John Hines History Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was actually recently interviewed and asked me, was my inspiration for joining the Army. Well, it was always clear in my mind, but now it's even more clear in that I didn't know much about the Army. I always had the recruiters in the hallways in high school. They weren't very aggressive in grabbing people. I guess they found who they, you know, they, they did it. Um, I just wasn't one of them and didn't seek it out and they didn't seek me. What year was this, roughly? And it's not an age-exposing interview, but... Um, <laughs> we can edit it out. This is 1976. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't wartime? No. So they're, that's where they're probably a little, little less aggressive, like... Post 9-11, like 2006, okay. they were oh. trying to snag up everybody. Got it. So, two, I'm sorry, 19, uh, 1976. Yeah, I was 17 years old. I uh, still had six more months before I was going to turn 18. Uh, more than, as a matter of fact. I knew I wanted to go to college, but I knew I didn't want to go right then. I, was gonna, I wanted to wait a year. Let me turn 18. I was, I think, a very mature 17-year-old. I wasn't immature at all, but I wanted to wait a year. School had never really been my, my thing. I thought maybe a year would get, get it to be my thing. Um, so, I was working. I was coming back one night, I uh, had a car, my older, next oldest brother had wrecked my car, so I was left to ride the bus to go, go to work. What were you doing at the time? I was working at Sears Distribution Center. Uh, it was a big old manufacturing place there in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, on the west side of town. I had to catch the bus, and I was coming back, it was late October, about this time of year, cold. I said, let me go in this recruiting office, you know, and just, just look. Lo and behold, one recruiter there, it's it about 1900, you know, 7 p.m. And again, no interest, didn't really know anything. I was 17, so I couldn't enlist without my mother's permission. Grew up as a uh, grew up with a single parent. My father died when I was when I was one, uh, so that's all I knew. She was out of town at the time, so that kind of you know slowed down their efforts. <laughs> Again, they weren't still weren't very aggressive. Maybe a month and a half later, they called. You know, it's not cell phone days, so if you're there to pick up the phone, I don't think it was even uh, answer machine days. Uh, at least we didn't have one. Uh, so if you weren't there to answer the phone, no one knew who was calling. So. I remember one day that they did call, and it's like my mother's still not home. <laughs> so uh, I, I couldn't join without her permission. So she came back after that call. She was in California, and I told her about the recruiter thing and all that, and said, well, if that's what you want to do, that's what we'll do. She meant it that way, too? Like, she, there was no reservation? She no. tried to talk you out of it or anything? No. Because a lot of moms tend to not want their boys. To, cause how many brothers and sisters did you have? Uh, two each, uh, all, all older, two brothers, two so you're sisters. you're the baby? I'm, I'm the youngest. Okay. Yeah, I like for young. It sounds better. Okay. <laughs> I'm far from a baby now, I think. But, but my oldest had been in, my oldest brother had been in the Navy, you know, so she was used to that. Okay. So no reservation. If that's what you want to do, I'll, I'll sign. Um, and then I just kind of let it pass. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't really call anymore. I didn't call them back. So it passed for about two months. Uh, by this time, I'm already 18. Finally went down there and said, okay, this, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, didn't have any friends who had joined or anything like that. Very real close friends, that is. Uh, to influence me, well, just a you know the lone survivor to to, to go do it. So, um, thought it'd be a pretty good decision. How did you decide your MOS? What you wanted to do? Again, 
not very uh, wise to, you know, what all the jobs were. Just, just pick something. What'd you pick? I was actually a uh, administration guy at first. Yeah, I changed over to be uh, to be infantry. Wow, usually the other way around. Not many mm. guys go from clerk to infantry. Mostly go infantry to clerk. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't grow up being an outside person. I mean, I played sports. That's outside. Uh, of course, you're out there doing that stuff all year round for the most part. But um, not an outdoorsman, uh, you know, as a kid. So I don't know what the attraction was outside, but that was very much the attraction. Sure. Was to be outside. That was a huge part of it. You know, not necessarily the, the skills or anything like that of the infantry. It was to be outside. Where did you go to basic? Fort Jackson. Fort Jackson. How was that? What time of year was that, actually? February, um, what's the holiday? The President's Day? Or that weekend? The, this is really unique. The, the guy that was our, they called him attack, I think. In those days, you had the turtle, uh, you know, you used to have the helmet and the helmet liner. Those tacks had these helmet liners that they made shiny black and they put their rank, you know, the gold rank, put that right on there. And um, they had some other logos like the post or the Tradoc logo or something like that was on this thing. And this guy was so intimidating. His name was Joe Johnson. Yeah, had a beard, you know, had a shaving profile. And he looked just like the G.I. Joe doll. I mean, splitting <laughs> image. They must have took a picture of this dude and said, that's the darn doll. Scary as hell. He's not even a drill sergeant. You know, just... Just cadre? Loud, yeah, yeah. And what they've done at Fort Jackson, they made these guys the tax. So you get the, get the you know, troops when they first come in and you have them reception station, all that type of stuff, teach them a little bit of initial DNC and all that, and then they go off to basic training. You know, again, super naive about the military. They said, well, you guys are going to be shipping off to basic training, uh, and the drill sergeants are going to kind of pick you up in, you know, four days. I'm like, you mean this guy's not the drill sergeant? I'm like, holy cow, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's how hard your imagination, like, if this guy's that bad, the drill stars right. have to be. Well, I survived him. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm all right, but okay, I, you know, I'm doing pretty good right now. The, the drill stars are better or worse? Actually, the drill stars were not as tough as him. Yeah, so you lucked out then to a Lucked out. So I was already, you know. You're already terrified. <laughs> already been a school of soldier, yeah, yeah. Already been OJT. But I guess the, the program they had was these guys would fulfill this role, having interaction with, with soldiers coming in and all that type of stuff, and then he went off to drill sergeant school. Because I still had AIT on that post, and I saw him later. Hey, you saw him, Johnson? Yeah, he don't remember, you know, all these people going through. I'm going to fast forward on you in that he was later my, well, super fast forward, he was later my first sergeant. <laughs> and then later, so he was, the first, he was my first sergeant when I was a platoon sergeant. And then my battalion command sergeant major when I was a first sergeant. Was he less intense? <laughs> down the then, road yeah yeah Let, well when you were e7 he probably know. took it a little easier on you than yeah, when you were yeah, yeah. e1 it wasn't on me then yeah. you know and i made sure my platoon was squared away so i didn't have to deal with the wrath of that but i i, I saw it you know so you can warn your guys like don't cross don't cross first sergeant well yeah not not so much if you could get if they could make it through me then they you know we didn't have to worry about him sure so were you you were already transitioned to infantry at that point yeah how long did you do the admin stuff four years i think you years. reclassed while you were in? Yeah. But how, was that an easy process to do? Yep. So you yep. just said, hey, Very I want to try something different? Yeah, I was a drill sergeant at the time, and then that's when I switched over. How did the training work? Did you have to go back through, like, infantry basic, or? I didn't, I didn't do anything. I just I think I had to take a test. It, it was all based on the, uh, the infantry SQT at the time. You had to take a skills, I guess a skills qualification test, the SQT stood for, and you had to do that every year. That kind of quantified where you stood as it relates to knowing all the skills in your, in your MOS. I'm not sure when they did away with that, but that was a quantifier. Was it written or was it like... Uh, it was all written at the time. Okay. Yeah, that was a quantifier for quite a, quite a while in the Army. Yeah. So you took the test for infantry, passed it, mm -hmm. and then you just got that MOS now and you yeah. sent your infantry unit? My, drill my senior drill sergeant, when I was a uh, drill sergeant, he was an uh, infantry guy, airborne ranger, said, Bart, you can do this. That's where the real leaders are. You're a real leader. And that's where you need to be. Uh, and once you do it, all you have to compete with is 20% of the, of the field. You know, so 20% of your rank is all you have to compete with. Not 100% of my rank at that time. It would only be 20% because only 20% are going after it, not 100%. You know, so you think I'm coming into something new. It's, gonna, it's obviously going to be competitive. How am I going to beat out 100% of the guys? Well, sure. he said, you know, it's only 20%. Okay, well, I can, not, not that 100% would change my mind. You know, but to, to know it was only 20, that made the decision, you know, a lot easier and that I could compete with 20%. So at that point, like, had you already kind of made up your mind that you want to make a career out of this long term? Um, not, not at that time. So you not thought maybe do another four years as infantry, see how you liked it? Um, I think I was in a six-year enlistment at the time. That was really my decision to, I think after the four years, okay, well, I'll just do it. I'll enlist again. 
I wanted to be a, uh, worked in a postal, USPS, when I, when I got after those four years, but I could never make it back to Columbus, Ohio to take that test. But you know, when I could be off to go there and take it, they weren't offering a test during that time. So I never, right. never made that happen. So I ended up re-enlisting. But still, even after that, it was, I had made a decision to stay in. Because it was really tricky at about the 10-year mark. I had to come to command. I wasn't necessarily fond of. Where are you stationed <laughs> at at this time? Now I'm in the old guard. So, so okay, I, as a drill sergeant, I switched over to uh, the infantry. To finish my drill sergeant time, and I went to Korea. I actually tried to go to ranger school right away. They wouldn't let me go to ranger school right away. Where were you drill at again? Fort Dix, New Jersey. Dix, okay. Yeah. So, so they, wouldn't let me go to, they wouldn't let me go to uh, ranger school right away. So I went to, uh, went to Korea. So what's, what's the fastest way that I can get my skills uh, up to par, prove myself? And it was, it was Korea where the, you know, the ball could drop at any time and um, you know, you're, you're fighting. I saw, I saw up there, they kind of looked at records as soon as you arrived to put you in, in certain units and all that. So I think I was headed to second ID and then JSA, they, they recruit and they look at your records and say, well, you know, these guys came off the trail, you know, his SQTs are out the roof, uh, all this stuff. Uh, we, we want lead people in our unit, which was JSA, Joint Security Area, that's where you would work. The unit was called JSA, or J, I think JSF Company but the unit was JSA, you know, so you're right there on the line. So in that job you had, uh, I was a squad leader for one of the four platoons that was there. So you had four platoons and, and, uh, and a headquarters company that made up JSA. You were E5 or six at this I was, time? yeah, staff sergeant. E6, okay. Those uh, four platoons rotated uh, on a rotational basis. You were up north, which was in the JSA itself. You were on QRF, which provided quick reactionary force support for the joint security area. You were training or you were off. That was a rotation of four platoons. So one of those, one of those four, you, that's where you were going to be. Um, it rotated from a two-day uh, stint to a four-day stint. We kind of went back and forth to that. So four days you would be north, four days training, four days off, four days QRF. So we got to do live patrols you know, all the time. Uh, what, what was unique about live patrols there in, in JSA versus second ID, you know, if I went on live patrol and I saw the KPA, I made a decision to pull the trigger, not calling 10,000 people to get to, you know, the commanding general of the, the second infantry division to, to shoot. We had that authority to pull the trigger. I had authority to, when I set out a Claymore mine on, on, on ambush on patrol, if I saw them, that was my call. So a lot more autonomy with this unit. Oh, big time. I mean, that's obviously a perk. Everybody yeah. kind of thrived off of that. So you, right. didn't, you had no desire to go to second ID or anything after that? No. no you know, it was a one-year uh, stint in... Um, and in Korea at that time, yeah. Did you enjoyed your time there? I did, I did. I mean, just, just the, again, you know, the autonomy, you're doing a real world mission, anything could happen at any time. Uh, and to speak of anything happening at any time, you know, something did. We uh, got into a, uh, a firefight with the, uh, with the Korean People's Army. And you talk about any time of just a chance thing where a defector from the north side who was uh, uh, Chinese, I believe, he came on a tour on the north side. This is Thanksgiving Day, uh, 1984. Thanksgiving over there, you know, a few hours later here was going to happen. He had already made up his mind, I think two years prior, that he was going to go on this tour in communist North Korea, you know, from communist China, and he was going to defect. So him and a buddy are there. So when they had uh, tours on the north side, we would have some guards out there. We didn't have any tours on our side uh, like we normally would because of the holiday. Right before they go back up to what's called the Gok, their main kind of headquarters there for their guards. The defector says, I mean, let's take a picture. You know, he tells the guards, take a picture. So his buddy's standing, climbing where you are, and let's say South Korea is to my back. And what separates the Koreas there in the JSA is really no, no wider than this carpet right here, this rug. You know, so not, is it just not, some sea wire or something? No. You've you heard of the, uh, the talks that they have between the North and the South. And I want to say it's um, been a long time, but I think it's MM, I can't remember what the, what the acronym is for it. But they have the talks in the building. And um, inside the building, there's just a table, you know, a linear table, and there's a wire going across the building, microphones on each side. That wire on the inside of the building represents the North. So it's, uh, you know, I'm sorry, numbers the North represents the Koreas, you know, one side North, one side South. So when they would have tours, they'd go inside that building and lock the other side, and we'd do the same when we had tours. And they'd be outside when we had tours. You know, so the thing, same thing happened on both sides. So the defector stood with his back to South Korea, um, his buddy's kind of where you are, and uh, he's standing beside the KPA guard. 
and his buddy's taking a picture, and he just turns around and runs right through the buildings. I guess he'd done a little bit of recon just to see what the GSA looked like. He just got on the road and just kept running. Then a guard comes after him shooting. Other guards come out from the, from the north side shooting. And of course, we come out shooting and just this firefight ensues. We would have drills all the time with the QRF. Now, we weren't on QRF. We were right there in the JSA. Uh, but the QRF comes up with as many as they could find or, or they loaded the trucks. And, you know, it's kind of a call when a siren goes, load trucks, you know, it's Thanksgiving, people in the DFAC eating. They're kind of spread all over our little small compound because they're not, you know, they knew they didn't have to go set up at the QRF site. It was probably you know, a little bit less than a mile from, from the JSA itself had it, been, had it not been a, uh, a day of no tours. When there's tours, they stay at the site. When the tour's in for the day, they go back to the compound. So it's three miles. But they say load trucks, and then they're, obviously something real is happening. They left with whatever they had, which is about 12 to 14 people. That's almost one of those trucks. So you have our platoon. It's about 33-ish in size. And then you have, you know, those additional 12 or 14 to fight all the KPA. How many KPA were there? No, oh, man. Lots. <laughs> like a battalion's worth? I don't, know, we, I don't know if we knew how many were in that building. They had guard posts, so we knew that guard posts. We probably figured at least they had as many as we did. But I say I don't know because... Once that started happening, there were just truckloads coming from Pyongyang because you could see the road leading, you know, from Pyongyang. You couldn't really see Pyongyang, but you could see the road that had them come up there. And it was just trucks, and they would get out in the trucks, man. It was kind of like a, uh, you know, the smaller FedEx truck, something about that size. And it'd be, look like 50 people piling out of there, like, <laughs> and they were all going into the gawk. I was like, man, if they uh, launch a counterattack, we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> Did the guy make it? The guy made it. The guy made it. Were you guys all pretty pissed at him for starting this incident? Well, you know, at the time, you know, he didn't know exactly what was going on other than someone shooting at on our side. That's all we really knew. I mean, he had a pretty good start on him, at least out of uh, small arms far. Well, not small arms far, but at least out of that pistol range. Um, he had a pretty big jump on him running. But so all we knew at that time was someone shooting on our side. You know, all the pieces still had to come together. We, uh, now, half our platoon was, was Korean, and half was, was, was GI. Um, the kind of smart Koreans or the, the ones who knew English, very intellectual, they uh, had opportunity to be what's called Katusas, Korean augmented to the United States Army, as opposed to being going to the Rock Army, you know, a lot harder, a lot tougher. Um, these kids were going to do this for two years and then go to, uh, go to college. So every, every male in Korea has to go to the military. So those are the guys that we had. So during, during this fight, I, I tell you about all these numbers. It was really only our half, only the GIs were fighting because the Koreans didn't come outside to fight on, on our side. Hmm. Yeah. That's irritating. That's yeah, sure. irritating. You know, it's November. I got there in July. So I pretty much have, what, about eight months left to know that, you know, if something happens, it's just us <laughs> and not them. Yeah. yeah. So you can't, basically, you can't trust the Gattusas. No. The Rock guys were solid. We had them in yeah. Afghanistan with this Rock Army guys. Right. Real deal. But right. Gattusas just junk. Garbage. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the one of the that got got killed. He was outside on guard duty. Uh, we had a guy. Um, every time something would happen outside, workers would come up and work. We'd have to guard them. So we were out there out there guarding uh, a worker, and it's always the team GI Katusa. And um, you know this shooting goes on, and uh, the Katusa gets shot. Somebody goes to this high ground. Anyway, gets shot right here, dies. We couldn't even find him immediately following. And then the uh, GI that was with him got shot in the neck, but he had one of those. Next, it kind of hung down a little bit, and the bullet just went straight through, so he got lucky. Yeah. So those are our casualties for that. Um, killed five. Uh, I mean, it's not a beat-your-chest type of thing. I mean, it was a firefight, and this is the results of it, but five of them were killed. I think three wounded and one later died or something like that. So This was in the 80s? 84. 84, so this was really the only combat that the Army was seeing at the time. Yeah, it was right after, I mean, 83 was Grenada, you know, so it was about a year later, Yeah. Where did you uh, where did you go after you left Korea? Went to the Old Guard. Old Guard, that's yes. right. So what did you do there? I was a squad leader. That's when I ran into uh, Joe Johnson again. <laughs> um, he was in a company that was uh, right beside mine. I was in Bravo. He was in Delta, and they were kind of just right. I mean, real, literally right beside one another. Uh, you come out the door, and they're right there. But so saw him saw him again there. Ironically, so I was a squad leader. I think for a year, year and a half, or something like that. What were your unit's responsibilities there? Funeral detail is the biggest one uh, in our international cemetery. So you have funeral week, you have training week, kind of like this rotational thing again, uh, a training week, probably not off a week though. So funerals training, like alert status, you know, for the Washington DC area, you're on that. I forget what we call it, just like a regular line unit has to do. 
Yeah, I think it was just those, those three weeks, and then sometime that would extend it to two-week periods, especially in the summertime. I think when the weather got warm, it was two weeks, so we could have two weeks straight in the field. Now, I always thought that it was uh, pretty complex, and you needed good people to do that because you had to, you know, go from, I mean, literally, sometimes we would finish funeral stuff on a Friday, and then 1800, we're on a bus going to Fort AP Hill for two weeks to, to train in the field. You had to turn one switch off and turn on another, just like that. Now, you know, you do your normal planning for what you're going to do when you got out there, but, I mean, there was no, it was just, it was training. It wasn't, hey, let me teach you how to do this funeral guy type thing. I mean, sure. you had to jump right into, you know, tactical squad leader mode and, and rifleman mode and, and platoon leader in the, in the field mode, so. Uh, it was a pretty selective unit, right? Like, yes, you, yeah. You could wash out of it very easily. Yeah. So over the course of a year, you can kind of weed out whoever you don't want there. Right. Pretty easy. Yeah. Did you guys do the... In those days, it was easier to do, yeah. The tomb guard as well, was that... Yeah, so I spent a year as a, uh, as a squad leader, just a regular line platoon. Probably maybe about 18 months. And then it was a selection process to go to the Tomb of Unknown Soldier. For my rank, because I, I was still a staff sergeant, I think I'd been selected to go to advanced course by then. For my rank, your job was the relief commander. And that's the guy who inspects the weapon, inspects the uniform, comes out and says, ladies and gentlemen, have your attention, please. All, all those things, that's what the relief commander does. Uh, the sentinels are the guys who walk back and forth 21 steps and 21 more steps and 21 seconds and all that. What are those guys, E4s and 5s? Uh, yeah, E4s, okay. E3s, uh, some E3s, E4s. Occasionally might be a 5 out there. Those kids are squared away too, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to be squared away for sure. <laughs> Not going to get there if you aren't. But for my position as a relief commander, there was only three, and it was based on height. You know, so from supposed to be five ten to six foot was third relief. He may get up to about six one ish. The next relief, so that was third relief. Second relief was about six one to six three, and then the first relief was six three and taller, or six four and taller. And those guys were that tall. So really, there was only one job that I could do. There's only one job I could compete for. So whoever was there was leaving. And he might have been gone because I don't think I ever met, never met him. So it was me and another guy that was competing for this one position. You know, so you get trained through all that. You know, you're, you're a new man. It's kind of, you, you got you, you to gotta perform. You know, you got to answer all these questions. You have to be able to put your uniform together. You know, they'll show you one time and then you have to do it. And that earns you the right to get outside and, and you know, perform your duty. Usually it would be when the cemetery is closed so no one can see you mess up. The knowledge was really based on the, the cemetery. Uh, so you, we were really the only living, breathing historians of the cemetery, you know, for the most part. Now there was, there is a historian, but he's one deep, and most people didn't really see him. Then you have the, the security people who work there to really open up the chain and Make sure people go from point A to point B, but they don't really have any knowledge of the cemetery. I can probably tell you where, you know, President Kennedy's buried and his brother's buried and, you know, maybe uh, another president. That's really about it. We had to know all of it, really for the basis of people asking us, because, again, we were pretty much the only living, breathing people who work in, in the cemetery. So that was part of your qualification. Then as it goes on, you had to answer 100 question tests and then your ability outside in order to receive your tomb guard identification badge. So the guy was going up against it just eventually quit, so it just left me, because we had a couple of uh, periods of where we were, uh, you know, tested against one another. So I think I was leading pretty, pretty good, so he just, he just quit. How many uniforms did you have? Like, how many dress uniforms? Because you can't, can't imagine you just take one every day to the cleaners. Yeah. You're like four or five of them? I, I probably had four. I think I probably just wore two, though. Yeah. You had backups? Yeah, the other ones... Um, it's kind of funny, the material, some material conforms better than, than other, uh, other material. So I probably had two that I used. Well, I think I had three because I had two that I used that, um, that were, had my rank and everything on it. Then I had one that didn't have any rank or anything on it that I used to walk like a sentinel. So I just taught myself how to walk. And I watched those guys and let them kind of train me on how to do it once I got my badge so I could lead by example. Sure. You know, because I could tell them stuff when they were walking as a relief commander that I would see, well, and they could, they could BS me. Well, sorry, we can't do that because blah, blah, blah. You know, well, what I know or not know, I would think I would know, but I haven't lived it, so I don't know 100%. But once I started walking, then I could call BS. How long did you do that for? I was the relief commander for, I think, 18 months. You enjoyed your time there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, well, probably 19 months total. Three months of that was, or two and a half months of that was in infantry advanced course. 
think I was there for two months. Uh, got there in October, and then January I was off to the advanced course, came back in March. Where was the advanced course at, Benning? Fort Benning, yeah. And then I was there until May. Oh, I got my badge in May, so two months after I got back. And then um, went to ranger school in the fall. So I was back for maybe four months or something like that, and then went out to ranger school, and then came back again, um, kind of started up finishing, I guess I graduated in January from ranger school. And then I stayed down there to May because I got promoted to Sergeant First Class and I left there to go be a platoon sergeant. How was Ranger School? Because that's a, that's a pretty stark transition you're making from two total, I mean, as opposite as you could be of responsibilities yeah. and duties. Well, I, I think we go back to that field training, how sharp you had to be to be able to, to, to get, to maximize, you know, your time in the field when you're in the old guard as a squad. Like I said, you go from funerals to having that uniform on to take it off and then, you know, straight out to the field you know, ready to do the training. So I don't remember any, anything being difficult in the transition. You know, it's ranger school. That's a transition in and of itself. But in terms of the tactical aspects of, of what you have to execute. What was the toughest part? Was it the, uh, you only get two real answers to this. It's the lack of sleep or the lack of food. What was the worst for you? Or the night, night land nav? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that being too difficult. It, it's, it's, um, you have some prerequisites that you have to do, and then you have to perform them, you know, when you get there. So I think... Uh, mentally prepared for, you know, no sleep at some point in time, then it's going to hit you. And same with food. You know, it's going to it's going to happen. You're kind of, you know, intentionally winning yourself off. It's going to happen, you know. But mentally, you're prepared for that. Toughest, I would say, the mountains learning how to walk, you know, because you want to just kind of put one foot in front of another, and that eventually will tear up your Achilles, you know, really make them super sore and tender. You have to learn how to walk like this up there, but, but I mean, when you're walking with that rucksack on your back, you can just put your arms down. It can just drag the mountainside as you're going. Steep. That's how steep it is, yeah. So not hard. You learn from difficult, just got to learn how to walk that way, up those things all the time. I mean, you have to have endurance, uh, but you, you, that's already built before you get there. I would say that, that walking up the mountains, it gets a, little, gets a little tough. The people you know, trying to get them to hang in there and them switching on you or flipping on you or whatever the case may be. You know, you start out in squad, you go to section, then you go to platoon and you're putting all those pieces together with, you know, some of those same people for a long time. It gets to be a little, little tiring. Were you one of the few people there in that class that had actual combat experience from Korea? Mm, that's a good question. Probably, you know, you don't wear anything. So no one knew I was my rank, you know, no one knew I was a staff. No, no CIB or anything on. No, nothing. Yeah, sure. All right. By ranger school, you determine like, hey, I'm this is a career for me. I'm gonna. I'm in for long haul now. By ranger school, yes. Tell you about my company commander. Just didn't. This guy just did not. You know, do it for me. Just kind of lax days ago, but was getting away with it. You know, first sergeant would always be in his corner. I guess like the first sergeant should. Just not a. Not not the guy. And then he got promoted. He's ranger qualified, so that I mean that was part of my decision. Like if this guy can do it, like anybody sure. can do it. So I know I can do it. Yeah, that was a huge motivator for me. So after ranger school, you went back to the tomb, finished up there. What finished was next up there, for you? And then I was a platoon sergeant and uh, one, one of the line companies in the old guard. I think I did that for two years. Then I was back at the tomb to be the sergeant of the guard. So the sergeant of the guard is in charge of the whole thing. So you have the three reliefs, a driver, and the main responsibility is uh, really those, those high-level wreath ceremonies. The Memorial Days and Veterans Days, you know, I was the guy for a two-year period that was on the other side of that wreath. That's pretty cool. Who was president at the time? Was that Reagan? Uh, president Clinton, President George Bush, Herbert Walker. Yeah, H.W. Bush. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Did you like being there, or did you, did you want to go to regiment? Did you want to go to a... No, I like being there. I like being there. You know, it, it, wore, it wore its course, you know, after that job, in terms of jobs. Now, what, what I've learned, what I guess I learned there, and I think it was by having to be in the field one, at one time and then doing the ceremonial stuff, was, was learn a unit in and out in every aspect of what everybody had to do. Not just my platoon or my company. I mean, all the other line companies, what they were good at, what they weren't, what the headquarters was good at and what they weren't. The commander in chief guard, the specialty platoon, the drill team, the color guard, I knew all of it and, and most of the people. So I could filter my people into those positions if something opened up and I could prepare them for it ahead of time to get there. You know, cause someone wanted to get in some of these elite jobs Probably had about three guys that was in my platoon when I was a platoon sergeant after I left from being a leaf commander to, to go to the tomb and be sentinels. Um, but I knew how to prepare them for that. Of course, they came to me, I want to be one of those. How do I do it? You know, 
But I, I like being there, but it, it ran its course. I guess I got promoted twice there. One in Sergeant First Class and then the First Sergeant. And that, that's when I left after the First Sergeant to go be a First Sergeant in line. That sent you to Campbell? No, I went to uh, Hawaii. I was in the 25th ID. How did you enjoy Hawaii? I liked Hawaii. I didn't, I didn't get to <laughs> enjoy Hawaii itself through all the, you would think, fun stuff uh, too much because we were in the field all the time. Oh, all yeah. All the, you know, the weather's always good. Right. I, I tell people that the first two years, so a 24-month period, I didn't sleep in my bed for 13 of, of those months. I was there two weeks, and then I was gone to Malaysia on a deployment for 30 days. So at that point, I had more time in Malaysia than I did in Hawaii. Sure. Hawaii. Yeah, so I've heard all the guys go to Hawaii. I'm like, how'd you like it? And they're like, well, it's expensive, and we never actually saw Hawaii. <laughs> we were walking in lava everywhere. Right. Or that yeah. pumice, getting in your boots, cutting your feet up. Something. Yeah, yeah. Spent a lot of time in the Kahukus and... <laughs> Yeah, it came from me with the centipedes. I think once the centipede bites you, man, it's, it, there's a scent in you forever, so they find you. <laughs> <laughs> they're just drawn to you. They're drawn, they find you. That's they like the, the fire ants at Fort Polk. Mm. One gets you, they all come after you. Yeah. Uh, how long were you in Hawaii for? Three years. Now, of that three years, I spent, um, say, one month in Malaysia. I don't know how long in the, in, in the field overall, and um, six months in Haiti. Then uh, what was the next step after that? Well, before we get to that step, I, I, I was two years as a line first sergeant and a year as a HHC brigade first sergeant. You know, so I learned, I thought I had learned that HHC brigade first sergeant, even though I didn't really see it in that particular uh, guy, it was a, a pivotal position to help if you made command sergeant major. Because you're right there to brigade headquarters, you get to see all this stuff, you get to see the talk up, up close and personal, and how they operate, what they do, how they do it what they're doing as it relates to the line, who's thinking that, that piece out. So I got to jump in there a little bit, although that wasn't my job, you know, they're, all those headquarters people uh, at Brigade are, are mine. And um, so I got to see how that worked and be influential and in that as related to the things that they were doing to and for the soldiers out there on the line, you know, thinking through those pieces. So each battalion, line battalion, will have a command sergeant major and then like the ops sergeant major. Is brigade the same way? Was well, there a- in, those, in those times, they had, there was a brigade sergeant major and there was an operations sergeant major. And then they had, you know, all, all these operations sergeants. We had luxury in, in our company, you know, at that time that a lot of the sergeant first class, you know, there's a training guy and a schools guy and a assistant operations guy and all these different guys. And we had a little bit more than we were supposed to because maybe six of them were either some first class promotable or master sergeant waiting to pin on a diamond. So they were waiting for companies. So we had the luxury of having about six of them. You know, so we were crazy good right. in, in that talk because they had all these, all these stinkers. So that made life pretty easy for oh, you? Oh, yeah. It, well, not necessarily for me because it wasn't my job to do the talk piece, but it made it easy for the operations sergeant major and really the brigade as a whole to maximize on everything they need to do as related to uh, field operations or tactical operations because we had all these critical thinkers inside the top. By the time you left there, you were ready for the yeah. next role. Yeah, but more importantly, having seen uh, all that stuff up close, I knew it would help me you know, if I got the opportunity. How long were your first sergeant? So I left there and I went to uh, 6RTB, which is Florida Phase of Ranger School, and I was the first sergeant there. And I was there for uh, a little bit less than a year. So I got reported in September of the year and I left in July the next year, because I got there in September, made the Sergeant Major and Command Sergeant Major list in that December, and then I left in July to go to the Sergeant Major's Academy. So you were the first sergeant for like all the cadre that worked with the guys in the field? It's an atypical unit, right? Like yeah, I was, that's- well, I was the Alpha Company first sergeant in 6RTB. So I had, had you know, Sergeant First Class and Staff Sergeants in, in, my, in my company. And we had a regular mission, just like the other two companies, Bravo and Charlie, to uh, you know, train range students. But it wasn't like your normal, you get up, you do PT, you go to the motor pool, you go... No. So you would go out and as the ranger candidates are going through the course, mm-hmm. you'd supervise the cadre and the instructors there? Uh, pretty much. Um, you know, when we had students, everyone knew what their role was. You know, you, you have certain days that you're going to be on the schedule to, you know, walk patrols with the students, grade the students. That was the biggest thing is the grades. And um, I was the manager, if you will, me and the commander of, of the master board of grades in our, in our company. You know, so I remember it was in, my, in our platoon, we'd go to Fort Benning to pick them up. We'd either jump back into Florida or they'd bust down depending on the weather. You know, once they're in session, once we start our training or their evaluation, then it all became all about those grades. So the guys come in from the patrol the night before, they turn their grades, we're immediately putting them on the board so you can keep track of who's the goals, who no goals are, who needs another patrol to make it through. The fact that that was a culminating 
culminating phase of range school at the time. Once again, you're in a unit super professional all mm -hmm. around. Your job is made easier because just the guys under you were just so good, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there'd be some missteps here and there, but you sure. know, they're, they're to correct them. And then I had I always had a day to grade as well. I think I always had day nine or something like that. And the commander had a day eight, or, I believe. So one of us had to be inside our, our headquarters all the time to manage the grade. So so that for about a year? Yeah, a little bit less. Where was the next about step? About seven months. Then Sergeant Major Academy for a year, then Fort Campbell. Sergeant Major Academy is a year? Yeah, basically <sighs> about nine months. What's that like? School year. How is it? Like you got a buff floors and stuff, just well, like you do at all the other schools? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not at all. It was, uh, at that time, I think we were a little bit behind in education, in military education, if you will, because most of the stuff, you already know all that stuff. From a leadership perspective, what to do as a SAR manager, you've already kind of done it. You get a little bit of a break in a nine-month period. There's some other stuff that you have to do there uh, from a lesson standpoint that's different, you know, different country briefs and those types of things. Build a great network, you know, great camaraderie between fellow senior uh, NCOs. And you ask me what was my takeaway to take back to the unit to be a Sergeant Major, you know, not, not much. So what year was this when you were at Sergeant Major Academy? 97. 97. Okay, so still peacetime for the most part? Yeah. Where'd you go after Sergeant Major Academy? Uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that's when you started your seven-year run there? Yes. Yeah, probably had to fight to get that, that job because, uh, well, to get to that installation. Actually, another guy had it, and he wanted to go to Fort Benning, and I was headed to Fort Benning. So we just swapped. Oh, that Because I wanted to be nice. light, and he didn't really care. Sure. <laughs> he just wanted to be at Fort Benning. Yeah. So it was easy. Who, what unit did you get attached to? No slack. No slack, huh? Yep, second 327. You enjoyed it there? I absolutely enjoyed it there. I think the whole no slack history was the thing that, that grabbed me first. Again, I didn't, I didn't know anything about the 101st, uh, but once I got there, I understood why people were, were fighting to get there all the time. That's a cool unit. Yeah. So you were a battalion sergeant major there. How long did you have that job for? Uh, three years. Three years. I came there, the, the, uh, the incumbent was already, already gone. So jumped right in and, and, you know, made some impact right away just by, by being a leader, which is fun. When I walked in, I had a company in Kuwait, a company in Haiti, and a company in uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, so I was on planes right away going, going to see all those, all those companies. Circulation. Yeah. You have, that was pretty regular for you every few months or so? You'd have to make those? Um, they, were, they were pretty short, maybe about four months or something like that. So okay. they had already been there a month when I got on board. Some of them came back a little bit earlier. Do that for three years. Then uh, what brigade did you end up? Uh, first Brigade, Same Brigade headquarters of uh, 327, so 327 Regiment and First Brigade. And that, while you're the Brigade Sergeant Major, that's when 911 went that's down. That's when 911 went down. So yeah. what was that? I remember that morning? Well, I was a uh, pseudo <laughs> acting Division Sergeant Major for uh, for the day because the Division Sergeant Major was uh, on leave. I uh, was with the with the CG that morning. We done his um, I guess quarterly run. And, and uh, NCO PD with the, all the first arms on installation. So we started out on our run, uh, kind of normal morning for us uh, as it relates to that particular event. Finished up the run, and then the next thing for us to do was meet in one of the brigade defects and have a, a breakfast, and that's when the, you know, the professional development would, would ensue. But before we get into that, you go back and, you know, personal hygiene and all that, and I come out of the shower and uh, my office and the commander's office were, you know, right beside one another. And our brigade XO was in the commander's office. He said, Sergeant Major, come look at this. So I got one boot on, one boot off, my video pants on, T-shirt on. I'm hopping over. You know, so I'll put the other boot on over there. He's like, look at this. He said, some fool just flew us plane into, the, um, into one of the towers. So you know, I'm seeing the smoke from that. And then and, you know, a few seconds later, I see a second plane. And I'm thinking, this is HBO or something. This is a movie. No, look at the bottom. It's CNN, you know, because after you see the jump, and then the second thing is like, you know, I'm just now getting over there to see it. You know, you couldn't believe your eyes. Just, just couldn't believe that that was really happening. So get dressed, go to the meeting. Of course, the whole focus of this professional development has changed dramatically. You know, once you get there, some people had heard about it. Some people hadn't. Of course, the commander had, and he jumped right in on, on that message. And the whole security thing on post ensued. Um, and we were there for probably, probably two days, I think, before I went home. Our unit, you know, with the heavy uh, bulk of the... Um, of the security on on the installation. Was there a point where you had to go? Is the brigade sergeant from the brigade like, hey boys, we're not playing around anymore. Get ready, like we're going. Yeah, yeah, we we, we thought we were going, um, you know, very soon because the talk was about that. Um, our unit was scheduled to go to uh, JRTC in October. You know, you're there for a month, so we ended up going to JRTC. We were very surprised and 
pissed at the same time. Sure. That's probably the, the one thing that kept you from going to Afghanistan in October. Exactly. Yeah. Got to be a little painful to deal with at the time. So it ended up being third brigade. It left in January. When did you guys end up deploying? So that's 2001. Uh, third brigade left in January 2002. You know, so that whole year was we're going somewhere. And I remember my brigade commander at the time and said, I don't know if we're going to Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, some other stand or banana stand. We got to be ready. So <laughs> we were constantly ready. And what we called the spin up, you know, it looked like we were going to be doing something and then not. You know, we're going to Somalia. We're going to, you know, we're going everywhere. And then they're going nowhere that year. So the spin up was driving us crazy. So then with third brigade gone and all those duties that three brigades would do, you know, uh, two brigades were doing. So that was tough, which the whole security piece on post kept sure. going for a long time. That was killing us, you know, because we couldn't, we weren't going to the field at all. You know, so in terms of T's, P's, and U's, we were just dropping because we, didn't, we couldn't train. You know, I was a huge advocate for the rest of the, the post to pull guard. Like, these are riflemen, you know? Okay, they fix helicopters and all that stuff. Everybody needs to do this. And we started utilizing our entire BCT to help us with guard, but there were still other units there that wasn't doing anything, you know, just benefiting from us being on the, on the gates. And, um, yeah, I was very, very uh, vocal about that. Did you guys ever go to Afghanistan or? Just Iraq, yeah. How many times did you go? Just once, during the invasion. What year was that? Oh, three? 2003, yeah. What was that experience like for you? Um, well, you know, it started off horribly. Um, In Kuwait? Yeah. You know, so we had the uh, ISB, Intermediate Station, based there at Camp Pennsylvania. I think most of us got there in March. I think I was on the last thing to leave, you know, kind of shut down the headquarters, make sure the, the rear dude was in place and doing what they were supposed to be doing and all that. And our third battalion went at the same time last. Well, actually, all the times kind of a little bit left at the same time. So I was there about three weeks, and um, that's when the, you know, the, the horrible thing happened where one of our own soldiers decided he was going to kill us for the work for the other side. And, um, you know, his remarks was to keep you all from killing our women and raping our children. So horrible night. I was up watching golf. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here. You were in that tent? I was, I was in a tent. But you were at the MWR at the time or whatever? No, during I was the in incident? a tent. You were in the tent when it happened? So had I been asleep, my whole area was, was, that's where the grenade landed and blew up in my tent, was right by where I slept. So my whole area was all tore up. But from that area to where I was sitting watching Tiger Woods play golf was, it was a different area. Uh, so first he rolls in, sitting there, grenade, you know, of course those starts fires, and that just kind of came right, right by me and pretty much right here and right over to where you are. And I was sitting right at the end of the table. Had I been sitting this far over, I wouldn't have been able to see it at the bottom of the floor there. Now that one just started to fire, but seeing those sparks said, okay, this, this is something. I knew we were in a land of not quite right, and that was a not quite right grenade that had sparks before it blew. You know, I wasn't trying to look, oh, that's an incendiary, you know, I had no time to be a scientist. I got up, uh, knew the commander was sleeping in the back, and got him up, hey, your grenade's gonna blow up. So by this time, you know, it's starting to fire so bad, even though he had those fluorescent lights in that tent, it's dark can't see anything. Get him up and I could go right to him because I knew where, you know, where that was. And uh, get him up and say, okay, we got to get out of here. The grenade's going to blow. He's in the middle of, you know, just waking up. He didn't know what's going on. You know, socks. He had his pants on uh, and t-shirt, but we got to go. Gets his boots on, not laced or anything. And said, so count to three and we're going to run out the front door. Now he was in all the way in the back, but we had that. That's where the, uh, you know, the temper tent, that's where the air conditioner heater unit thing was. You know, so really all tied down, couldn't get out the back. So I had to go out the front, past where the, where I thought a grenade was going to blow at. Well, so as he get ready to go, uh, well, by that time he throws in a frag grenade that obviously does blow up. So I put myself on the side of the one I think is going to blow up, not knowing another one's going to come in. So the commander's on that side, that ends up blowing and knocks him back into the, into the sleep, his sleeping area. He gets one piece of shrapnel in, in his arm. Uh, I'm on this side going down the kind of the little aisle of the tent where my arm up like this, thinking I'm going to block the shrapnel from this side, you know, again, thinking that grenade's going to blow with, with my arm. But something about adrenaline, when all that stuff starts happening so fast, you don't you really hear as right. much as you normally would hear. It all, it all changes. Dr. Phil will have to answer that one for you. I don't, know, I don't know what the hell happens, but something happens. So fly through there, and as soon as I get through that little vestibule part, I hear a gunshot and turn around. And, and um, by this time, I'm, I'm long past that vestibule because I've got that run to start from the back. Well, ends up shooting our XO. Uh, it shot him in the hand, went through this hand, through that hand, and through his leg. So pull out my weapon and, uh, you know, you cock your weapon. Well, we just got our ammo that day and got a magazine in my weapon. I don't have ammo. 
They had all these ammo on, my, on the table there. I'm watching tables here. I'm watching television here. Got all night. I'm watching golf all night. I'm going to load my ammo. And, well, didn't get that far. So no ammo in my, in my weapon. So you get that ch, not ch, ch. So I'm thinking, they go to talk. Got to be ammo in there, an M4 in there. At this point, you, you had no idea who was doing this. No, no. You didn't know it was enemy. You, didn't, you had no clue. Well, first thought has to be enemy. Sure. If, if something, uh, somebody shooting has to be, has to be enemy. Uh, so I go there, get, get an M4. Those guys' eyes are this big because they're inside. Can't see what's happening outside. You can just hear. Get an M4, get nods, ammo, go back out. So they're putting guard, you know, someone's take charges in there. I think, our, our, I'm sorry, not think, but our S2 is in there. And so put some guards at the door, kind of give them a little, you know, running password. <laughs> it was going to be me. And, um, and no one thinks about having a running password when you have a mile circumference of a perimeter. And inside of that, you know, you have all these units around. And then in the middle, you have this headquarters. You got to think of a running password inside that little thing. But anyway. Go back out and go to my tent because I know, well, I don't know where the commander is because I come outside thinking he's beside me and he's not. So I got to find him and got to find the XO who I know is shot. So I go back to my tent and neither one of them are there. Can't see anything with these nods. I think you need at least one star and I had none. It was just dark. You know, of course, at the same time, I'm trying to find who's, who's doing this or, or the enemy, not, not a person, not just one. So I go back to the talk and I tell the guy, hey, go look for them while I go look for the enemy. At this point, there's no one outside. I mean, I don't see anyone. I don't hear anyone. If all of our soldiers we have in the headquarters, no one. So tell him to go do that. And uh, while I go look for the enemy, go back outside, and then I get challenged from a distance. Freeze. And I recognize the voice, but I can't see him. They say, well, who's there? Sergeant Major. Oh, Sergeant Major, what, what the hell is going on? Instead, one of my, one of my, hey, what was his job then? I wanted to talk NCOs who I had known from my old guard days. Anyway. He wants to know what's going on. I don't know. I said, uh, Major Rain is shot. You know, grenades are exploding. Then he tells me that someone else has been shot. And then we start looking for something, you know, the enemy. Uh, by this time, the medevac is, is up and well, up and right at the medevac, but just uh, triage is beginning to happen. Our, our second tent, grenades went in there. Uh, there's a fire in the back. Probably the worst casualties happened in that tent. Grenade exploded in the third tent. Got casualties in there. So there's casualties all over the place. You got people trying to treat and triage. And so that second time I went, when I went back in the tent to get the guy to tell him to go look for the commander in XO while I look for the enemy, someone on the radio says, do you need an FLA? Like, yes, I know we have one injured. So yes, and it was any of the talk. At the same time, I call no slack. I don't know why no slack was, did my mind say, because I had been in that unit, did my mind say that that commander is the senior battalion commander, I don't know. That's the first thing that came to my mind. That's the first unit I called out of all of them. And there were some closer, but I called that one. Hey, I need at least a uh, squad over here. No, I need at least a platoon. Send somebody in charge of a platoon over here to look for the enemy. You know, I'm trying to do the outnumber, outnumber them. Um, doubting this platoon that's doing this because I have yet to come in contact with anyone. So it can't be a, uh, you know, enemy that size. But I don't know. So they come across. So all this is happening at, at the same time. They don't know what they're looking for. So while that's happening outside, I come back and I talk, something, you know, someone's found the colonel by now. He's trying to find out what's going on. He thought I knocked him down as opposed to the grenade knocking him back. Still don't know who, who did there, so what's going on? I say something changed. You know, something changed in our camp. Uh, you know we're too good for any enemy just to come in here just like this and do this. Some, something changed. They say, well, Sergeant Major, two interpreters came in last night. That's it. It's them. Go find them. So they get these interpreters, you know, they're just as scared as everyone else. They got them outside, uh, you know, rifles to the back of their heads and they're on their knees. Of course, they didn't, they didn't do it either. You know, pissing their pants, just as scared as, you know, I don't know what, they don't know what's going on. I, I didn't volunteer to be an interpreter for this. <laughs> no one told me people were going to be throwing grenades in my tent. Yeah, they told me I just had to talk, you know, so. And how many casualties had you taken at this point? Honestly, I don't know how many. It was, at that point, I didn't know. D didn't know. But it was several that were wounded. Yeah. Well, I mean, fast forward, ended up being 12, two killed. Not then. The second one was shot in the back. He, he died later that morning. And then one in, in tent number two died of shrapnel wounds. He had 83 shrapnel holes in, in his body. And he died uh, probably four days later, I think. So just, just fast forward, get a call from any units, because the colonel said we need to get accountability of our, of our people. That's when we start getting the count of the casualties and all that. Medivac's coming in. And then we learned that one guy's missing and 
this ammo and grenades are missing. And here's the name of the guy that's missing, Akbar. So now we have a name. Still don't know if he did it. So the search is, is for Akbar. Uh, unfortunately, uh, everyone has a uniform on and, and Akbar is a soldier and probably has a uniform on. That's the only thing we can, we can go by. If you don't have it on, we don't even know if it's, what his name is gonna be. So I, I think to go to the, the senior leadership that's out there on the ground looking, you know, Sergeant First Class and above, staff sergeants that I trust the most and all that, to tell them what we're looking for, as opposed to just telling everyone. You know, I tell the, the E4, I don't know what that means. I'm gonna tell the E4, hey, we're looking for this guy, he has a uniform on, his name is Akbar. Oh, by the way, he looks like me. You know, <laughs> what does that mean next time I come back around there? You right. know, do I get shot, who knows? So, well, no one even knew what Akbar looked like, number one. I mean, they didn't want to say that he's a soldier other than to those top level people. I figured they knew what to do and didn't say anything beyond that. They have to figure out how they're going to tell their subordinates and how, they, how they're going to treat it. You know, you start jacking up everyone with their back. If their back is to you, is that him? You don't know. He kind of helps us out. He goes to one of the, one of the bunkers. Uh, I think something turns on a rage like that and something turns it off. Same thing that turns it on, turns it off for whatever reason. So the rage is over. He goes to a bunker like everyone else. You have these, you know, scud bunkers that people went into. Sirens going off. Oh, by the way, uh, somewhere in there before you even get that call, in the air, something shot down. And of course we think it's a scud. Well, no one's paying attention. Well, some people paying attention to the alarm, scud alarm and getting in the bunkers and all that. Uh, but a lot of people aren't. We got too much stuff going on. Be going to a bunker about scud. Like what else could, what else could happen? You know, you couldn't sure. script the movie any, any better than this real life stuff that's happening right now. Alarm goes off. Some people have a mask on, some people don't. I'm like, well, Scud's gonna get me, Scud's gonna get me out, you know. I don't have time for that. That was like what I said, I don't have time for that tonight. <laughs> and um, so this explosion happens in the air. I mean, just out of nowhere, boom, this huge fireball in the air. Don't know what the hell that is. You figure if, if the sirens had been going off that, you know, they shot down a Scud, don't, don't know. It, it's kind of a, I mean, it's close. It's not, not too far away. It wasn't gonna fall like right on us. I'm sure people, some people thought it was. But again, even if it's, it's 20 feet that way, that's 20 feet that way, that's not on me. Don't have time to worry about that right now either. Right. Too, much, too stuff. much other stuff going on. Yeah. You know, someone's out here trying to, trying to kill us. Uh, that turns out to be a, a British tornado, I think it's called, but it's an aircraft. So unfortunately, during all this stuff, our, our, our Patriot missiles picked this thing coming, coming back in. Mm. And I guess because of all, the, all these neighboring camps, they can hear the gunfire, they can hear the grenade explosion, all this type of stuff. So they think we're being attacked and all they know on the radar, here comes something. And they shoot it down. Then we get the Akbar. Our S2 had been, when he got the bunkers, he would always say, who we have here? You know, trying to calm people down uh, and all that. Tell them what he knew, you know, intel-wise, information-wise and all that. And, uh, but there was one bunker he hadn't, hadn't gone to. Maybe about 40 feet or so away from the top. So now he has this name. But said, this bunker, I haven't been that bunker, I'm going to go to that bunker. So he starts walking over there, has his pistol out, and, you know, from a distance, 20 feet or so, says, who's, uh, who do we have over here? And he'd been doing this all night as he went to bunkers, and says, Akbar. Well, he just heard his name, Akbar, from the talk, and, and, you know, we're looking for Akbar. So he has the calmness to holster his weapon so he doesn't look like a threat. Doesn't know what Akbar looks like yet. Doesn't know what posture Akbar has from a distance. It's dark. He can't see him. Akbar doesn't know we're looking for him. Uh, and then gets up right beside him and then, then takes him down. That's how we end up catching him. You know, then we learned that, you know, he did it and all the rest of those things, so. So what happened to him after that? CID comes, they, they begin their investigation, they, they arrest him. You know, we put him in flex cuffs, got people guarding him. You know, I've said that, take down, search him, all, all these things. They, they come and, and arrest him and take him away and, and uh, start their investigation, which went into the next day. So by now, it's getting to be well, once they get there, it's still not even daylight yet. We've got a long time before daylight. We're still picking up the pieces. You know, medevac had come in at that time. Now, actually, the first, both medevacs come in. The hospital wasn't that far away, you know. So they get there. They take one load out. Second, both of them land. Second helicopter lands, gets loaded up. And as it's loading, that's when, you know, the fireball and the, that's when that British plane shot down. So they can't go straight over to the hospital. You know, we're talking like from here to the river, not, not far, maybe a wee bit, maybe the other side of the river, let's put it like that. They can't go there because this thing got, got shot. So they have to go, I forget the name of the, the location, but it's pretty far away. And you know, we lose, that's when we lose the guy that, got, that died. Even though he got shot in the back and the bullet didn't come through, I don't know, but that didn't help. 
So the guy gets sent back to the States. You guys continue with your mission. We, we don't really know what, what, what happened with him um, after that. But we... Um, Assume he was court-martialed, right? Yeah, that eventually happened. So they pick up his friend at night and um, go to the hospital the next day to see some of the, some of the wounded guys. Uh, we learn about Captain Chris Seifer who got killed. Come back, CID still doing an investigation that lasted most of the day. Got to write statements and all that. And if you go in our tents, get out, we'll be get all our stuff while they do the investigation. And everybody just had their head down, you know, rightfully so, you know, grieving. I'm thinking that we are not ready to go to war. And now it's supposed to be about four days from, from then at that point. We were scheduled to, to cross the border. And I just stop, everybody stop, get up, get out of here. You're not gonna sit around here with your heads down, feeling sad and sorry for you, for something. You know, we're just not gonna do it anymore. So I get it. I know that's, that's, that, that's where you wanna be in your mind, but we're not, just not gonna do it. You've been doing it all day, and that time's over. Still want to do it? Go someplace else where I can't see you. But you're not going to sit around here and do it. You know, maybe that was the, the moment that the light flipped or switched on, and, and everyone realized, okay, the war hadn't started yet. You know, that's why the war hadn't even started yet. You know, you got to flip the switch here. You end up crossing the border two days later, you know, to fight the real war. So fast forward, I think that was, that was, that was March. In June, we had a... Uh, VTC kind of uh, some guys we had sent back to not testify or they had to testify uh, in order to make it a court martial and me and the commander and a few other people did it via VTC uh, we come back after the deployment in February the next year so now it's 2004 and this trial didn't even start until April 2005 I think since they hit the ground they said well lawyer office calls oh we need your phone number and blah, 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 where you're gonna be the next 10 days or so in case the trial does something or whatever, we need any questions. <laughs> and I, I, I said, you know, I'm not answering them. They had a whole year to say something right. and they didn't say a darn thing for a whole year. And now, now we're back after a year. And first thing you want to do is take up my time with some BS and BS. And I'm not standing by a bleepity bleep. Right. Yeah, it was pretty expensive. <laughs> I was, I was pretty upset. Then as soon as I get back on the ground, you want to know my every whereabouts so you can talk to me about that. As uh, if you hadn't there. dealt with anything right. between those two times. Right. Like you weren't right. fighting a war. I was like, good luck finding me. I'm not the commander nothing. said the same thing? I don't know what he said. <laughs> I just knew what Bart Womack was doing. Um, and then, like I said, you know, that, that was February 2004. The trial didn't happen until April 2005. So. And whatever happened with him, was he convicted? Convicted, death row at Fort Leavenworth. Still hasn't been put to death yet, right? No, no. I wrote this book and put all these statistical things as it relates to um, soldiers being sentenced to death and actually being executed. It's few and far between. So you don't think it'll actually happen with him? That's a strong one. So you don't think. I think I'll see it. Yeah. I think I'll see it in my lifetime. Yeah. I mean, there's an appeal process. That's sure. what our country stands for. And he's had his last one, I think, I think it was 14 or maybe last year. What, what, 16 now? So last year sometime was the last one. Anyone in your tent KIA? No. You guys all survived it? Yeah. And who was in the other, were the other two tents that also like headquarters? Yeah, all this area, it was eight tents, it was all, hit, all uh, HSC Brigade. So it was all senior NCOs and officers, like these weren't yeah. privates well, or anything? Well, we had privates as well. Yeah. You know, that's in the headquarters as well. Yeah. That hung over the whole deployment, I imagine. Um, but to be honest with you, no one said a word about it the whole sure. time. Not one word. No one ever said what they would have done different than no one there. No one said nothing. It was never a topic of discussion. On to the mission, right? Other, other I, fish to fry. I hope. I hope, I'm sure they had to deal with it in their own way. I know my mind, and it's not to be, you know, callous in, in any way to not want to respect, uh, you know, our casualties, you know, especially those who, who were killed. Now there's more people shooting at us. Sure. You have to be vigilant and all that. It wasn't to turn it off. It was just, I, I don't know. In, in my mind, I will tell you that it was turned off. Sure. I mean, you were deploying to combat. Like, right. So this was to be expected at some point. But I point. didn't go around and say turn it off. Sure. I didn't say don't think about it. I, mean, I, I said what I said that day about picking up the pieces when you, you know, Stop sitting around with your head down. But I never said anything else after that. All right. Well, Sergeant Major, appreciate you coming out to now and say we didn't get to get to everything. Well, thanks for sharing your story with us, and we hope to see you at another one of our events soon. All right. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And the words that I wrote before these just didn't make sense. Because it's coming out of my mouth doesn't matter. It's in my head. I hold back in Would you break my heart if I gave it to you? If I 
It's falling apart, oh 